0: Well, we're in a series that we're calling Therefore Everyone, which is our second installment in our Roman series. The first installment was called For Everyone. And we looked at the first eight chapters of Romans in the first part of the series that were all about the gospel being for not just us, but for everyone. Then we kind of shifted gears as Paul shifts gears in the middle of the letter, and he begins to say, now on the basis of all that God has done, as a result or a consequence of the gospel being rooted in us, therefore how should we live? How should that affect us? So we shifted gears by moving to the second half, and we did that by having a new title for our series. Now, if you were here the past few weeks and you have a very short memory, or if you haven't been here the past few weeks, we're glad that you're here this morning. But I wanna remind you that we've been in Romans 12 for three weeks now. I started Romans 12 chapters three weeks ago, and we looked at the first two verses, Romans 1 and two, those familiar verses. Then Jason looked at verses three through eight and helped us understand kind of how we work out function in the church. And then Carlos last week talked about those neighbors on the outside, those that have further distance from us, and he helped us think through our relationship with them by helping us define and understand the word Philadelphia. And so I thought to return that favor this morning, I'll ask all of you, do you know what New York means in Greek? <laughs> Arrogant and self-centered, that's what it means. <laughs> well, we are going to return to Romans 12 today, but I want to show you and tell you why, why we're doing that. Do you ever notice that sometimes it's helpful to look very closely at something, to kind of zoom in and get a detailed look. At other times, it's important to step back and kind of get a macro view of what's going on. Up close and personal, back up at a distance to get the lay of the land. Let me show you what I mean like this. On the screen is a Google map picture of Calvary Church, Souderton. In fact, if you look at that, you actually see the outline of the building you're seated in. In fact, if you look at that little upside down drip that has a suitcase in it, and if you're old and can't see, that's a suitcase in that drip, that's the auditorium. And some of you right here in the middle are actually seated where that drip is, right? So that's Calvary Church, Southerton. And by having this zoomed in view, you can actually notice some things about the building. There you see, you know, kind of the main entrance or one of the main entrances. Mr. B's would be all the way up at the top. There you see the older building, all the stuff's kind of connected there. Question for you. What's the best way to get from Calvary Southerton to Calvary Quaker Town from that map? You can't do it, right? We have to zoom out. And if you look at this Google map, you'll then see that both of our campus locations are on the map. Calvary Southerton is at the bottom, Calvary Quaker Town is at the top. You can't see the outline of the building anymore. It's really tough to see where some of you people are seated But at a distance, you get a different perspective. So for the last three weeks, we've looked at Romans chapter 12 in a more detailed way. We looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2, 3 through 8, 9 through 21 in different pieces. And we zoomed in. And it's important for us to do that. What I want to do this morning is to zoom out a little bit and talk about the connections between the different sections. And where the energy and enablement come from to live out the things that we've been talking about for the last three weeks. So we're going to revisit relationships, which should give you a clue right up front. Romans chapter 12 is all about relationship. And what Paul does is work in concentric circles about how we should relate to different groups of people or different people. So uh, I made a little graphic. I'm not much of an artist. Here's our little graphic. Romans 12, one and two is all about our relationship to God. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God, right? Our responsibility to God, verses one and two. Then in verse three, Paul talks about our relationship to ourselves. How should I relate to myself? Think about myself, function as it concerns me. Then he talks about the church, the body. Jason talked a really great message. If you haven't listened to that, you should go back and listen. Um, How we function in the body, in the corporate context called church. And then last week, how do we live with other people, extended neighbors? I'm going to call that difficult people. How do we deal with difficult people? In fact, Paul continues those concentric circles. And at the beginning of chapter 13... Paul talks about how should we live in relationship with the government or government officials. Talk about difficult people. we're actually gonna tackle that subject next week. And not that anybody in our culture struggles with dealing with government officials or politicians or anything like that. If you do struggle with that, come next week and let's see what Paul says about that. That's not the topic for this morning. We're gonna look at these concentric circles, God, self, church, difficult people. I wanna remind you of a couple of things. Uh, that were said the past few weeks, and then maybe answer a couple questions uh, that maybe didn't get covered in one way or another, but mainly emphasize how the circles connect together and how we have to keep the circles connected. If you try to lift one of the circles out of the other circles, it's not going to work. So we're going to v- revisit relationships and doing it in a macro way. So what, what is Paul doing in Romans 12? Well, in a sense, I think it wouldn't be a stretch to say what Paul's doing is just reflecting in a detailed way on Jesus' answer to a question that was raised. And the question is, so Jesus, you know, the Old Testament gives us lots and lots of commandments. Which of those commandments is the most important? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers the question. Most of you know the answer. Here's uh, here's how Jesus answers the question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He answered the question it was asked, but he won't let him stop. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It seems to me what Pauls doing is saying, you know, Jesus tells us to love God and love people, but when I think about people, I realize there are people at different relationship to me. Some are close, some are further, some are in the middle, some are at a great distance. How can I love my neighbor when they are at a different positions in relationship to me? So I think Romans 12 is Paul's continual reflection on Jesus' answer to the great commandment question. Well, the first circle that we're going to look at is what should be our relationship with God? Now, we teased that out a few weeks ago, and here's, what, here's how Paul says it in verses one and two. Familiar verses, everybody. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your um, true and and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Remember, he begins with, therefore, as a consequence of, as a result of, everything he's been talking about in chapters one through 11. So as a result of all of that, as a consequence of all of that, what should we do? We should offer our bodies, offer our entire lives to God. Say, Lord, on the base of all you've done for me, the sanest thing in the world I should do is to now live my life for you. Just in case you missed the therefore, he says, in view of God's mercy. Therefore, in view of, where's God's mercy spoken of? Chapters one through 11. So two times in the first few words, Paul's saying, the only way you're going to live this stuff out is by reflecting on one through 11. You gotta think through one as a consequence of one through 11. As a result of one through 11, that's that's why we offer our bodies and the rest of the chapter tells us how to do that. Well, what does it mean then to live in conformity to the world or to our culture and how can we be transformed then? Well, if you think of those concentric circles that I put up there, let me just ask you to uh, think with me. What does our culture tell us we should do and think and live when it comes to God? I think our culture would basically say, you go through life, kind of ignore God. You You pretend he doesn't exist, not much of a consequence. You need to live life, take matters into your own hands, live as if God's not there. He may be there, but it's no big deal if he is or he isn't. So you need to live life as you believe it's designed to be lived. Don't go putting uh, your values and your truth into something someone else says or an old book says. Just ignore God. Secondly, how do we treat ourselves? How should we live in relationship to ourselves? Well, if there is no God, then uh, who's the next candidate? Well, I think I make a good candidate to be God, right? And so if God's not at the center, I need to be at the center. So if God vacates the center of the concentric circles, I then put myself in the center. And isn't that exactly what sin is from beginning to end? What did Adam and Eve do at the very beginning? They removed God from the center and they put themselves in the center and they began to think that all of life, all other beings all need to come together to give them what they want. So they put themselves in the center. So our culture says, live as as if you're the most important thing, you're the most significant thing. How about when it comes to the church? Uh, Jason helped us think through this. And you've never asked or heard questions like this. Well, uh, what am I going to get out of church today? How's church functioning and feeding me and giving me what I want and what I need? Notice we follow the same script, right? And the script is church is for my benefit. Church needs to be delivered the way I want it. People need to interact with me the way I prefer. And so all of that bows to me. How do we treat um, difficult people? Get even? Revenge? Take matters into our own hands? Make them pay? You see, our culture has a script for every one of those concentric circles. And I don't have to tell you what the script is. You know what the script is because you could state it as easily as I can. And if we're honest, we live that script week by week. We're all conformed to our culture and the concentric circles as it goes. Well, how then are we transformed? Well, we're transformed by thinking through chapters 1 through 11, realizing that we were in not just a predicament, but we were in a hopeless and helpless situation until God did something about it. And God took all of those faces of alienation and brings reconciliation where there was alienation and that's the center. In light of that, we should view ourselves differently, we should function in the church differently, and we should treat difficult people differently. So how are we transformed? We're transformed by continually going back to the gospel, back to the problem, the solution, and the results that we've been talking about for a few months now. That's how that transformation happens. It's not some new magical formula we learn. It's the same basic message that hopefully we cut our teeth on week by week, year after year, and we have to keep doing that because we easily forget. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of what God has done for me out of that hopeless and helpless situation I want to respond and do something right but what I typically want to do is to uh, kind of make life miserable for myself you like that right so I, I need to pray extra hard I need to read a lot more of the Bible now I'm not saying that those things are bad but I find it interesting that in Romans chapter 12 Paul tells us what God wants as our response. And the response is not go to church a lot. The response is not read the Bible all the time. The response is not say your prayers extra hard. The response is, I want you to keep me at the center. I want you to treat yourself accurately. I want you to live and function and serve in the church faithfully. And I want you to deal with difficult people according to the gospel. That's what God wants. And so don't get hung up on that. How can I make myself pay? Get in step with what God says. What does it mean to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice? To live out the relational concentric circles in the rest of the chapter. That's what it means. Well, that brings us then to the second circle. And that is, what should be our relationship with ourselves? What should be your relationship with yourself? Well, Paul kind of threads the needle here. Here's what he says. For for by the grace given you, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment and according with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, here's the interesting thing. There are some of you in this room that have a more positive view of yourself than you should. And there are others in the room that have a more negative view of yourself than you should. Paul calls both sides guilty. Now, Paul does not say here what he says in Philippians, think of other people as more important than yourselves. That's not what he says here. He said, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, and don't think of yourselves more lowly than you ought. You know, we have a tendency to go to one or the other extreme. Some of you are full of yourselves. You think of yourselves more highly than you ought. What will cure you of that? By reminding yourselves of the gospel, you were in a hopeless and helpless situation. Our sin, our rebellion against God, brings deserved condemnation and judgment. That's what we've earned. So, if you want to know what you've earned in and of yourself, it's condemnation. That's what you've earned. That's the downside. And for those of us that tend to have an over and exaggerated view of ourselves, the gospel cures that. But there are others of you that kind of follow that worm theology, right? I'm good for nothing. God can't use me to do anything. I have no gifts. I have no abilities. I have no talents. I have nothing. Um, God would say, no, no, no. You're just lying. God has given you abilities. God's given you gifts. And the other side of the gospel should cure that misconception. We need to be humbled by our sin, but we need to have confidence because God gave his son so that we could be reconciled to him. We are more sinful than we can imagine, but we are more loved than we dare dream. Both of those are true. You see, the gospel, that center circle, brings a balanced perspective in the next circle. Now, if you don't have the center circle, you're going to wind up going to one extreme or the other in the self circle. But if you have the center circle, a right view and a relationship with God, then you can have an accurate understanding of yourself. Deserving of condemnation, but completely forgiven and valued by God, the only one whose opinion really matters. Interestingly, what Paul then immediately does is talk about gifts. And so it's almost as if he says, now if you really are going to understand yourself and have an accurate, sober understanding of yourself, you have to express and hear from other people. And that brings us to the next concentric circle of the church, the church. How should we deal with um, people in the church? Well, here's a, here are the verses. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We're one body, different members. See how that works? We are gifted and we need the gifts of others. And so even in this, God's communicating the same basic thing. We have needs, that should humble us. No one in this room is omnicompetent. We all have needs. We need other people to supply what we can't do. But the positive side of that is we are all needed. And so at Calvary Church, we need every one of you, putting your shoulder to the plow, making sure we're working together in unison toward and destination. We need everyone and we, we are needed by everyone. We can't have anybody on the bench. Everybody's got to be on the field. Let's get out of the stands, off the bench, onto the playing field. There's room for all of us. That's the point. Now, when it comes to spiritual gifts, um, I I get lots of questions. And I don't have time to address them all. Maybe at some point we should uh, have a little series on spiritual gifts. We're not doing that this morning. But I do want to address at least two of the questions that I hear most frequently. Here's the first one. Well, Charles, how do I find out what gift or gifts I have? How do I discern my gifts? All right, well, let me answer that uh, by first of all, giving you the negative. I don't think the primary way you determine your spiritual gift is by taking a paper and a pencil and filling out a spiritual gift test. I'm not saying that those things are completely unhelpful. I'm just saying the Bible never says you can measure a supernatural enablement with natural means. You don't get alone with yourself and a paper and a pencil and figure, at the end you say, I have the gift of prophecy, listen to me. I have the gift of wisdom, you're all morons. That, that, that's not how it works. You don't get alone. How do you discern your spiritual gifts? You serve. You jump in the pool and start swimming. You don't stand on the sidelines. That, well, will I swim the backstroke or the breaststroke or the butterfly? Well, No, you jump in the pool. And so you determine and discern gifts by serving. And we always have lots of opportunities for you to experiment, please. Please remind yourself, when we often say to you, we need volunteers, we're not saying, we need you to give up your time and energy to help us out so we look good. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we have lots of opportunities for you to get out of the bleachers, onto the field, and part of your service will be helping you determine what abilities and gifts God's given you. You're gonna determine and discern your gifts by serving, not by sitting or reflecting. Well, here's another one. Spiritual gifts are not primarily determined by the quality of the performance. Now, that kind of trips us up because we like the quality of the performance. In case you haven't noticed, we like to do things well and with excellence here at Calvary Church. But you do not determine spiritual gifts by the quality of the performance you determine spiritual gifts by the quality of the result. So let me explain it like this. Sometimes you can have an over-the-top, almost perfectly done performance that God will never use to accomplish a spiritual result. Other times God will use a somewhat subpar performance and use that subpar for performance to accomplish a great spiritual result. So uh, let me give you an example that is a little humiliating. Suppose Have you ever heard a sermon and uh, it was just exquisite? Not, not here, I know, not, not here, I know. I mean, the, the, the preacher was eloquent. It was put together meticulously. Everything dovetailed perfectly. I mean, it was a homiletical masterpiece. You ever heard some of those? uh, Somewhere else, online or something. You heard one of those? Now, here's the interesting thing. I I find this fascinating. Sometimes God will not use that Grand Slam performance in a way that accomplishes a really great spiritual result. But have you ever had this experience? You listen to a sermon and it's a homiletical nightmare, right? I mean, the preacher confused himself. He doesn't know where he's at, not what's up. He's stuttering. He's stammering. Things are mixed up. He's in the wrong book. He's over here. The verses don't connect. You don't understand what he's saying. But by the time he's finished, your heart is dissected in your chest. And the Spirit is changing you like he's never changed you before. I think the Bible would say, in the latter example, a gift was exercised. In the former example, the jury's still out. Now, don't misunderstand me. Often, the quality of the performance and the quality of the result go together, but not always. And you know why we have to attribute that like that? Because God's free to do what he wants to do. If God wants to use a subpar performance to accomplish his goal, he's allowed to do that, and he doesn't have to check with you and your little excellence uh, criteria in order to do it. In fact, on our best day, we are more liabilities than we are assets to God. And sometimes God has to remind us, it's not what we bring, it's what he brings that actually makes the difference. And so I would encourage all of you, if you're wondering, so what gifts do I have? How do I serve? Get involved, volunteer for things that you would never think you'd volunteer for. If you have an interest in something, volunteer and give it a try. And then listen to the response, open your ears and eyes, solicit feedback. And when you do, the body, the church will confirm the gifts that God has given you because they will be moving more fully in step with Jesus as you're exercising those gifts. So get involved in serving. Let's get off the bench and see what God can do. Well, the last uh, circle that we're going to look at, I'm going to call difficult people. I was trying to think of a nasty way to say it, and I came up with a lot of those, but I'm just going to call them difficult people. Uh, So before we actually look at some of what Paul says, I'm going to ask, like, we're all among friends, so I'm going to ask all of you to be honest, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you have at least one difficult person in your life. Raise your hand. That didn't take long, did it? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't ask you if the difficult person sitting next to you or in your row. I just said, do you have a difficult person in your life? And all of you said yes. Well, Paul knows what he's talking about. Look at the description of these difficult people that Paul gives at the beginning and the end and the middle of this section on difficult people. Here's what he writes. Bless those who persecute you. I'll just give you a little hint. If somebody's persecuting you, my guess is they would be a difficult person for you. Like I'm just guessing. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If people are paying you evil, they would be a difficult person for you. But don't repay them evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not be overcome by evil. These people are doing evil. But overcome evil with good. I'm just going to mention one thing that we'll talk more about next week. But can I just tell you, uh, Paul writes what he knows about. Paul wrote, when persecution of Christians was real... And it wasn't just words. It was physical, actual. Nero was the emperor when Paul wrote Romans. And in case you don't know the end of that story, Nero has Paul executed. And Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So let me ask you, how do you typically respond to your difficult people? People that do you wrong, say wrong things about you, slander you, gossip. How, how do you deal with those people? Well, I can tell you because that's usually how I deal with them. Uh, number one, you avoid them. Right? We're not stupid. If they're doing us evil, we stay away from them. We avoid them. Uh, My guess is that avoidance doesn't quite meet the criteria that Paul spins out. So that normal response doesn't make God's list. How about this one? You hold them in contempt. Do you know what contempt means? Contempt means you demonize them. You're going to create a caricature. These people have done you wrong, right? They've done you dirty. They've done things, said things, and and you're paying the price for that. Contempt means you erase any goodness in them, but in great detail, you add all the badness to the picture until eventually you've got a caricature. The person is almost a demon. They become a black hole. Anything good the person does immediately vanishes. But any evil they do or any further wrongdoing sticks like glue, and you see it in great detail. That's holding them in contempt. You ever do that? Or how about this one? Retaliation, revenge. I don't know about you. I love a good revenge movie, right? In fact, Kim and I both are very upset that Bully Beatdown is no longer on TV. You remember Bully Beatdown? Well, let me tell you about Bully Beatdown. Bully Beatdown was actually a show about real-life bullies. And some uh, MMA fighters got together and came up with a little plan. And here was the plan. The MMA fighters would uh, collect letters and emails from people that were victimized by bullies. They would then go out and interview the bully. And some of the stories were horrific about the bullying, sometimes physical, always verbal, that these victims were experiencing. And then the bully was invited to the MMA ring in which they faced off against an MMA fighter. And it was a great show. (laughs) Because the bully never won But boy, did they take a beating. I love that show. (laughs) Well, bully beatdown doesn't make the list. So where are you in that? Is your normal response avoidance, contempt, revenge? None of those items make the list. What makes the list? Well, let me kind of... Tease out a couple things, maybe reading between the lines. Come up with five things that may help you deal with difficult people. All right, so here's the first one. Realize that you are a difficult person. Remember when I started this section by saying, how many of you have a difficult person in your life? Let me just tell all of you, you are on somebody's list. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to believe, right? Right. You look at yourself. You're so innocent. You're so caring. You have such wisdom. You live life almost perfectly. God should be happy to have you on his team. Well, you're on somebody's uh, difficult person list. In fact, I hesitated to ask how many of you would have me on your list, but I'm sure some of you have me on your list. You know, it's a sobering but honest comment. We are somebody's difficult person. Some of you are on a lot of lists. You know, but even more uh, traumatic than that, you need to realize that you are God's difficult person. You're God's difficult person. You don't believe me? I got an assignment for you this afternoon. Read through Romans 1 through 8, asking the question, am I really God's difficult person? And maybe your focus will come to chapter 5, verse 8, when it says, While we were still God's enemies, he died for us. You want to know something? You were so difficult a person to God, his son had to die for you to not be his difficult person. That's a pretty much difficult person, wouldn't you say? You see, if you take that first circle, you know, our relationship to God, you take, you take God out of the concentric circles, they all fall apart. But if you keep that one in the middle, all of a sudden you see yourself in a balanced way, you function in the church in a balanced way, and then lastly, you can deal with difficult people, not with a hammer, you deal with them as God dealt with you. Realize you're a difficult person. Realize you're God's difficult person. Thirdly, you need to resolve your part of the relationship. Yes, you heard me right. You have a part in the mess that the relationship is in. You may not have the majority part, you may not have ninety five percent of the part, you have a part. You can't solve the part or resolve the part that's not yours, but whatever part is yours, that's the part you have to earn, or that's the part you have to own, and that's the part you have to resolve. You can only resolve your part, admit your part. Isn't that how it works in our relationship with God? How does it work? Until we admit our fault, until we admit our problem, until we admit we're building our life on something other than God, we're living for something other than the gospel, until we admit that, we can't experience reconciliation. So admit your part and resolve your part of the problem. Well, fourthly, you have to refuse to retaliate. Paraphrase, no more more bully beatdown. You refuse to, I can't even say it, let alone do it. Refuse to retaliate. Instead, return good for evil. Now, I know some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, but Charles, you don't understand. Uh, You're right. I, I don't understand. And some of you are in a situation where it would actually be dangerous for you to be too close, near, or in close proximity to your difficult person. I would say then you shouldn't be near that difficult person because if your close proximity encourages them or enables them to sin, you shouldn't be in close proximity. This is not a call to be a doormat. This is not a call to be in close proximity to people that will really hurt you. I'm not saying that. Another question comes up and says, well, Well, Charles, last week, Carlos said that we shouldn't be hypocritical. So here's my problem. There are some people I really don't like. And if I refuse to retaliate and I return good for evil to people I really don't like, then I'm a hypocrite. I'm acting like I like them and love them, and I really don't. No, that doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. That means you don't understand biblical love. Biblical love is more action than it is feeling. In biblical love, feelings will follow the action. They don't precede the action. Do you really think as Jesus is being hammered to the cross, he had warm, fuzzy feelings toward us? He went through the actions because of his love. Biblical love does have feelings, but the feelings follow the actions most of the time. The feelings don't precede the actions. So trust God and Realize you're a difficult person. You're on some lists. You're God's difficult person. Resolve your part of the relationship. Refuse to retaliate. Return good for evil. The only way you'll be able to do that is to keep the circles together. Our relationship to God. Therefore, in light of all that God's done, as a consequence of the gospel, as a result of all that God has done, view yourselves soberly. Serve people in the body of Christ in the church. And extend the gospel in your relationship even to difficult people so how do we deal with God we submit to God how do we view ourselves soberly how do we deal with people in the church we serve and use our gifts in that way and how do we deal with difficult people we love them by living the gospel that's how we do it and as we do we stop the spiral of evil And we get it going in the opposite direction. If we're conformed to our culture, we will just continue the spiral downward. But as we stop and we start returning good for evil, we stop the spiral going in that direction and we get it going in the other direction. And we then begin to live out the values and the priorities of the gospel and we extend God's kingdom. I think that's called continuing what Jesus started. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these hard words, but necessary words. Lord, we confess that when we hear that we're supposed to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, we immediately want to come up with a list of things we need to do and say and how we think that that should work out. But Lord, you tell us how to do that. In light of all that you've done through Jesus, in light of the good news of the gospel, in light of alienation being swallowed up in reconciliation, we need to view ourselves in a balanced way serve the members of the community called church, and live out the gospel in our relationships, even with difficult people. Lord, the only way we do that is to keep one and two in the middle of all the circles. We pray in the name of Jesus who did that very thing for us. Amen.